be among us. I really sense that God is, um, I don't know, liberating uh, some of us from unusual anxieties, specifically uh, this morning, uh, and or cares that have gripped your heart. And I don't know uh, what those cares are in your life or the anxieties that you have. Uh, We all have different ones and sometimes they uh, seem far bigger and foreboding than at other times, uh, but oftentimes uh, they're always there sort of yapping at our heels. Uh, So, Father, I thank you that you are the only one who is able to release us from those things that uh, would tend to bind us up. And, God, I want to speak right now in the name of Jesus to every Um, chirping and muttering influence over your people today, Uh, all anxiety in the name of Jesus, all cares that have come into this sanctuary, and any who are watching this uh, via the internet, God, would you break the power of that anxiety and care uh, and worry this morning in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, well, let's bless the Lord, shall we? (laughs) I just felt like I had to do that. I don't know. Um, Take your Bible, if you would, and turn to the book of Esther. Uh, I'm actually going to be finishing up today, and uh, we've looked at the book of Esther for, oh, a number of weeks, and uh, it's kind of an an unusual and yet astounding um, work. And this morning, actually, I want to recap just a little bit by virtue of looking at reminding us of the main characters and what they've been walking through. Why do I do that? A, we forget. Uh, B, some of you are here who haven't been, and uh, we need to um, sort of get on the same page. So as we've walked through the book of Esther, um, and as it has related to our life together, that's sort of what we've been talking about over the last uh, number of weeks. God has given us life, and the commonality of that life we get to share. Um, And we share it on the basis of um, sometimes being free to share and other times not being so free to share. Why would we not be free to share life? Anxieties and worries and those cares and those things that um, so easily uh, beset us. But when we come to the book of Esther and recap sort of the story. I just wanna, I've been enthralled by story. And um, uh, David Tepper here alluded to the conference we had this weekend uh, by uh, James and Margaret. I see Margaret. Stand up, Margaret. There's James over there. Stand up, guys, real fast. Turn around, do a curtsy, whatever, and then sit back down. <laughs> They did an amazing job, and we went through a number of levels. I I see I could get sidetracked very easily, and I I won't. But one of the levels you travel through in learning any new skill is you come to the recognition uh, we are in. You ever heard bliss is ignorance, or ignorance is bliss? We don't know what we don't know, and we're happy there until we... Aren't we? That's why it's bliss. I'm just I'm happy as a clam. I don't know it. 
but then you, as you begin to master any skill, you go up these steps and you begin to consciously become aware of what you don't know. And they were able to help us uh, get in touch with those who were there, uh, what we didn't know, and how that does impact our interpersonal relationships with our wives and husbands if we're married, with our friends if we're single, uh, with our kids and grandkids if we have them, and our neighbors, etc. It was, it was amazing. And out of that uh, time together, we began to recognize how important questions were. So I'm going to tell you a story this morning. That's the story of Esther, and then ask some questions toward the end of it uh, that I trust uh, God will use in each one of our lives. Well, this story begins with Esther. Esther is a young uh, lady. We don't know exactly when she was um, hauled into captivity. I suspect she was born in captivity uh, under the Babylonians. Uh, actually, then the Babylonians conquered, uh, were conquered by the Persians some 40 years later. History's amazing, isn't it, as you watch these cycles. So Israel, the people of God, go into captivity because of their, well, their refusing to walk with the God who loved them. And in captivity then, uh, uh, captivity was taken captive, Babylon was taken captive by the Persians. And Esther was probably born in the Persian Empire. She was a young lady, and uh, this young lady, Esther, then finally becomes queen under the king of Persia, uh, who has the name of King Ahasuerus. <clears throat> How'd you like to have that name? King Ahasuerus. She was a very beautiful woman. She was attractive. And uh, the king uh, deposed his present queen, King Va Queen Vashti, got rid of her because of her insolence and who knows what else, and had these other young ladies brought into the city, uh, into his um, courts to be uh, nurtured and taught in his courts and Esther eventually uh, was chosen by King Ahasuerus to be queen. So we have a queen now in the Persian Empire by the name of Esther and it so happens that Esther was raised uh, we think by her cousin and he had an unusual name and his name was Mordecai. So we have Queen Esther, who was now brought into becoming queen, and she's associated with Mordecai. And Mordecai um, actually uh, is an individual who uh, evidently had a job at the city gates of Susa. That is, he, he had a job. I presume he wasn't just hanging out at the city gate, but he had a job of doing something. We're not told what it was at the city gate, and at that place of doing his job, maybe he received tokens for people coming in and going out. We don't know. Uh, but uh, Mordecai then begins to hear about, and he uncovers an assassination plot uh, aimed at King Ahasuerus while he's attending to his duties. We've got these guys, you know, you can see them, they're kind of the rebel rousers, they're, they're talking about the king, and they're miffed at him, you ever get miffed at your government, your king? <laughs> just, just saying. So they, they, had a, they, had an they had an assassination attempt against King Ahasuerus, and Esther's 
cousin, Mordecai, in doing his job, begins to hear about it, and he blows the whistle. He foils the assassination um, attempt, and uh, that's all we hear about it. The assassination didn't happen. Mordecai goes on about his business, and meanwhile, back at the story, uh, King Ahasuerus appoints um, a man to the highest position of prince in Persia. Uh, there were other princes, possibly princesses, uh, but we know that he was the chief prince, and his name was Haman. Um, Haman was promoted by King Ahasuerus to this position of chief priest over the entire Persian um, empire. But we notice something very quickly in the story, and that is Haman misuses his power and his influence. Now remember that, because that's real important. Haman misuses his power and his influence, and an example of that is that he demands that everywhere he goes, people should bow down and pay homage to Haman. So he's riding his horse, maybe he's walking with his entourage, and he demands that every human being that he comes in contact to would bow and worship and pay him homage. Well, that went on okay, except this guy at the city gate, who had the name of Mordecai, um, decides he won't bow to Haman. Uh, Mordecai refuses to bow down to anyone other than God. Why? Because the text tells us he was a Jew. Jews don't worship anything other than one God. They're men and women of the book. And the book says you shall have only one God before you. And so Mordecai hears the edict from Haman that every human should bow down and give him homage. And Mordecai, we don't know the attitude with which he did it. He probably just went about his business and said, no, thank you, because I know the God I serve and I know who I am. So Mordecai refuses to bow down and Haman becomes infuriated. Haman, remember, is the chief prince. He becomes infuriated and filled, the Scripture tells us, with wrath toward Mordecai and all of the other Jews that are just like him. Mordecai begins to be disdained by Haman, and then through a series of misinformations and distorting of the truth, you know how easy it is to misinform, just to withhold some information or to give extra detail? Well, that's what actually Haman did to King Ahasuerus, and through misinformation and distorting of the truth, Haman crafts this scheme to have all of the Jews, men, women, and children, annihilated. Genocide, we're talking about, destroyed off of the face of the earth. Haman crafts this, this scheme, and it should happen on a particular date. Now remember, Haman is the chief prince. He was actually wearing the signet ring of the king, King Ahasuerus. So he gets this dialogue going with the king. Hey, there's all these people out there, and they don't obey the word of the king. See, that's misinformation. What they wouldn't do, they had one man who wouldn't bow to Haman. And he crafts this scheme, and he writes this edict that every Jew in the Persian Empire 
all over these hundreds and thousands and millions of acres of this this mile, square miles of the Persian Empire would be destroyed on a particular day and he takes the signet ring of the king and seals that edict by the king's own sign and sends it far and wide throughout the entire Persian Empire in order that the Jews would be destroyed. Well, meanwhile, Haman at the city gate begins to hear of this plot and he begins to interact with Uh, Esther about it and he goes to Esther and you remember the story this is the quote that all of us remember from Esther Mordecai tells Esther that she has been raised to power don't think Esther this is because you're just so good looking you're a foxy lady that somehow you've been raised to this position God could have raised anybody to this position but God has raised you up for such a time as this therefore Esther why what I want you to do is go in to the king and use your power and your influence for the purposes of God's people. She was to go into the king, uninvited by the way, which was anyone who was to go before the king uninvited uh, would face the possibility of death should the king not extend his royal scepter uh, to that individual. You remember the story, King Ahasuerus, however, sees her coming into the courts, says, what is it, Queen Esther? And he extends to her the royal uh, scepter, and she was able to go in and ask uh, the king uh, for what she wanted, um, accepting her, he accepted her visit, and he was able to offer her anything she wanted, even up to half of his kingdom. I would say... Queen Esther carried some favor. So she went into the queen or to the king, and the king said, Yes, what is it? And uh, meanwhile, King um, Ahasuerus, shortly thereafter, the queen said, Well, what I'd like for you to do is come to a party I'm going to throw, you and Haman. Okay? So meanwhile, the king can't sleep. Anybody have problems not sleeping? Besides me once in a while? Come on, yeah, we do, insomnia, we get crazy, we, we think about stuff, the mind won't turn off, you know how it is. Anyway, King Ahasuerus wakes up probably in the wee hours of the morning and calls for his attendants and said, read to me. Now my wife's, where are you? Where's my wife? There she is. She reads all the time. She reads to go to sleep. She wakes up, she reads. Well, that's what King Ahasuerus did. Sorry, sweetie. He said, call the attendants and read to me the chronicles of what's been going on in my kingdom. So in his uh, early morning hours, it was read to him, and he learns from what was read to him that this guy named Mordecai they didn't even know about, who had a little job out at the city gate, um, had heard about an assassination attempt, and was the informant by which that assassination attempt was foiled. So King Ahasuerus is sitting there, and he's going, has anybody ever honored this guy for what he did? That took some moxie. That took some courage. That took, you know, to stand up in in a totalitarian, by the way, system where the dictator, the king, says, off with your head or you can live. That takes some courage for him to stand up and do that. Has anybody honored him? And with that comes a knocking at the door. Guess who's standing in the court? It's Haman. And Haman is coming in, and he's about to give the, his story to the king so that 
he can have Mordecai hung on gallows that he just got finished building. So the king says then to the prince, the chief prince that just comes in, come on in, here's the scepter, what's going on? And as the king began to talk with Haman, he asked him a question. What should be done to a person who foils an attempt? How should the king honor that individual? And Haman thinks it's about him. He said, I think you ought to put him on a steed, that the, on a horse that the king has ridden on. I think you ought to put a robe of many colors on him, purple, and that the king himself has worn, and a crown on his head, and parade him all through the city squares, all through the, the empire, the Persian empire. That's what I think you ought to do to honor such a person. And King Ahasuerus then says to him, that's what I want you, Haman, to do to Mordecai. The guy, by the way, he just built a gallows for to hang. Don't you love it? How God works in, in, to, in, to bring about his purposes. So King Ahasuerus then demands that Mordecai honor Haman. So Haman takes him out and dresses him in a robe that the king has worn, puts him on a horse the king has ridden, places a, a, a crown on his head. Jewel, you get the picture. And every place he goes, Haman, who is down in the dust leading the horse, has to cry out, this is what the king will do to the man whom he desires to honor. Very humiliating experience for a proud, egotistical person. Well, so Haman, in his wrath, after then his episode of leading him around, and what I said a few weeks ago is, by the way, I think God was giving him lots of time to repent. For a whole day, he could either choose to seethe in his anger and his wrath, or he could humble himself before Haman and say, I am so sorry. I was a real buffoon. I created a plan. God would have easily received him back. That's the nature of God. God is a gracious God. He is a loving God. And He's always willing to receive the likes of us back. Aren't you glad about that? When we turn from our arrogance and from our pride and simply acknowledge what's in our heart, God says, if you draw near to me, by the way, that's called repentance, I'll draw near to you. That's what we sang about. See, that's the, the, God wants us to come home just the way we are. So, uh, Haman then um, uh, takes this, in this foray with uh, uh, Mordecai all around and he's humbled himself and um, Haman then goes home seething. Just before the second banquet where he and the king were invited uh, to come. And Haman talks to his wife and to his friends and they convince him, yeah, to go ahead and build that gallows uh, on which you would hang Mordecai. Now here's, the, the story then begins, you see you have Esther, and you have her cousin Mordecai, you have King Ahasuerus, and you have his high prince, Haman, and all of their individual workings out of their lives, and then we finally come to Esther. Esther finds uh, favor in the heart of the king, uh, and that she begins then to expose the evil intent of Haman's heart, his evil plot, the plot to destroy Mordecai, her cousin, 
and the Jews, her own people. Finding that out, uh, then the story begins to end by Haman himself being hanged on the gallows of his own choosing. The gallows that he built himself, he's hanged upon. Now, that's sort of the story, but there are a number of takeaways from that story that I would make as we sort of conclude the book. And the first one is that uh, the righteousness that we see in the heart of Mordecai and the humility with which that righteousness is just lived out is different uh, than what we see in Haman's life. Um, uh, Esther was a person of courage and influence and used her courage and her influence for God's purposes. Mordecai was also a person of righteousness and humility and used that heart that he had in order to save people that is the king he didn't even meet the king probably had never met the king but he acted out of that righteousness you see um, uh, even as we see uh, righteousness being exalted in one person and pride and jealousy destroying another person one of the takeaways is that we as people regardless of the kingdom in which we live will either be exalted by a humble heart or a, and righteousness, or we will be destroyed by our own making, sometimes by our pride and our arrogance. So the point is that God's Word works in all environments and in all circumstances. We see then, secondly, uh, that God's people are being protected and provided for even in their captivity. We don't hear a lot about the captivity of God's people, but this is one of those books where we see it. The Babylonians had taken God's people captive, and then we have the Persians taking the Babylonians captive. So now the Persians are in control, and Proverbs 14, 34, and 35 tell us that righteousness exalts a nation, um, and yet uh, sin is a reproach to all people. Let me read it to you. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. The king's favor is always toward a wise servant. I would take that to mean a humble servant, one who does rightly, lives out righteousness. But his wrath is always against uh, him who causes shame. And we, in fact, see that the life of Mordecai contrasted to the life of, of um, Haman was one where righteousness exalts the individual and righteousness always protects the people of God under every circumstance. Is that good news to anybody? Regardless of the environment in which we live, you can trust God to protect your heart if it is kept in a mode of, of contrition and humility and living rightly before Jesus. Opposite of that, regardless of your circumstances, you can trust that if you live out of pride and arrogance and thinking that you know everything about everything, that will ultimately be the destruction of your life. That's what the Scripture calls folly. 
or sin. So that another then takeaway is that Mordecai, because of his humility and righteousness and, if you will, godly heart, has transferred to him the very signet ring of the king that, Mordecai, that Haman, his enemy, used to wear. Remember Haman over here dangling? Well, the king took his signet ring back from him. That's dangling. <laughs> and gave his signet ring the, the picture, the symbol of the highest authority and influence in the land. Now Mordecai is carrying the power and the influence, the highest power and influence in the land. Um, king Ahasuerus gives then uh, Haman's house to Queen Esther. So Queen Esther now has the house of Haman. Haman has the ring, uh, or Mordecai has the ring of Haman, and then Esther puts Mordecai, her cousin, over the house of Haman. So Haman gets hung, and all of his goods and all of his authority and all of his power are given to Esther and to Mordecai. Why? Because of the condition of their heart, the humility with which they lived out their life in the circumstance which I believe was a very dark one. The Persian Empire was dark, meaning it was a totalitarian government. By the way, it was run under the dictator of a, of a sovereign king. If he said you live, you live. If he said you die, you die. The example of is Haman. You mess with me and you get hung. But even in that context, righteousness always exalts a person and exalts a nation. Mordecai and Esther, then, who are now living in the, the, the house and all of the goods of the highest prince of Persia and has the delegated authority of the king, write a, an edict and rescind the order that Haman wrote that the king should be that all the Jews should be destroyed. So they write this edict, they seal it with the king's signet ring that the Jews should not be touched to, to, to counter the edict that was already sent throughout the, the uh, Persian Empire that said, don't you touch the Jews because we're, we're going to, in fact, even set a holiday apart for them, a day of feasting, which the book calls Purim, uh, Purim which is simply a time of feasting and rejoicing in God's provision uh, for them. So the edict is written. It's communicated throughout the Persian Empire, that the Jews should be saved. Now, here's the takeaway. God always gives authority and influence to people to be used for His purpose and not for their own. Unpack that just a little bit more. Haman was given the highest authority in the land, the chief prince, but he used it to exalt himself. Bow down when I come near you don't bow down, I'm going to have your head. And I'm going to destroy all of your people, all of your ancestors. You see what's going on in him? He, his influence and his power was misused. Um, God always gives power and influence to people for his purposes. Here's a question then for you. Learned that this weekend. What authority and what influence do you have right now, today, maybe in your job, with other people around you, what power and influence do you have 
and are you using it for God's purposes or for your own? That's a dramatic pause, by the way, so that we might think for just a moment together. When we look at Roman numeral three, the Roman numeral one was just a recap of the story. Roman numeral two is uh, just some takeaways from the book. Roman numeral three is really just about contrasting the two men and the two hearts, specifically Mordecai uh, versus Haman. Two men, two hearts, and two distinct outcomes. You see, the scripture says that Haman, who was given authority and power, became angry and he was filled with wrath and prideful. He was the highest prince, as I've said, in the Persian Empire, and he used his authority to exalt himself. How are you using your power and your influence of God living his life in you? How are you using it in your marriage? Cause other people to bow down when you come near. Now I'm, I'm pushing it further, you see. Pay homage to you. It's, it's the exaltation of self is what we're talking about here. That's what pride and arrogance looks like. Are you pushing your weight around before other people? Well, Haman, this anger and hatred and pride then is what ultimately destroyed him. James chapter 1 Fast-forwarding it into the New Testament, James chapter 1, I'm referencing verses 19 and 20, say this, we are to be slow to wrath. Why? For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. In other words, you can never outmaneuver your own wrath or your anger. If you have it, it will always find you out. You can stuff it down there and pretend it isn't there and swallow hard and fake some people out, but eventually your aggression may be passive, but it will come out, and eventually it could even destroy you. 1 Peter 5, verses 5 and 6 say, Therefore, be clothed with humility. Why? Because God resists the proud. Those who are wrathful and proud, God will resist them. And we see that literally played out through the life of Haman. And it en he ended up swinging at the end of a rope. Uh, some historical context actually says, it says gallows, but it may mean impaled on a real tall spear. And this one happened to be 75 feet up. I don't know whether it was a spear, to, uh, something, some pinnacle to impale him, or whether it was a rope, makes no difference. He was hung because of the own, his own condition, of his own heart. So 1 Peter 5, 5 and 6 says, Therefore be clothed with humility. Why? Because God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He give, gave grace to Mordecai. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, and in due time he will raise you up. Mordecai is just doing his job out here at the city gate and he hears about an assassination attempt and he blows the whistle and he foils it. He stood for righteousness and nobody even knew about it. 
And finally, Haman comes around, exalting himself out of his own pride and arrogance and said, everybody should bow down and pay homage to me. And Mordecai, in his humility, just said, I can't. I live and die for one person, and that is God. So I'm going to stand for him regardless of the context of the, the nation in which I live. And God says in 1 Peter chapter 5 that he will resist the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, Mordecai, and in due time uh, you will be exalted. Proverbs 16:18 says, Pride always goes before destruction, and the haughty spirit before a massive fall. Now let's look at Mordecai again. We just looked at Haman. Mordecai was uh, righteous. He was humble. He was unassuming. And how does God look at someone who is uh, humble and righteous and um, unassuming? We think they're the underdogs and they'll never win. You know, because if you're going to win in life, you've got to take everything that you can get. You know, you only go around once in life, right? Wasn't that a beer commercial? Go for all the gusto you can, you can get. Step on people on the way. But no, First uh, Peter 3 says this, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry or their prayers. But the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, what I take that to mean is that when God sees a heart that is humble and unassuming and therefore righteous, uh, that God always sees their actions. It makes no difference whether those actions are done over here in the corner, out at the city gate, or somewhere else. God sees your heart everywhere you are if you are living in humility and, and surrenderedness and openness to Him, meaning righteously before Him. And secondly, not only does God see our actions, but He hears our prayers. That's what the Scripture says in uh, 1 Peter 3.12. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. Do you ever think God doesn't see? <laughs> All the time. Does God care? Does he care that I'm standing for what's right and all these people are turning against me and it hurts and I'm getting talked about? Yep, 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 yep. God always sees and God always hears. Is that good news for anybody here? Some of you school teachers are going back into an environment maybe this week and you have other teachers there that just drive you crazy. You know, they just talk about each other and they gossip. This isn't just for teachers, by the way. Well, this is a human thing. But maybe you're going back into a context where you feel like, you know what, I'm standing for something and does God even see and is it even worth it? And I would say the scripture has just been read to you. Number one, God always sees and God is hearing you. Seeing you and hearing you regardless of where you are or what you're doing. Now, having said that then, I want to just end with maybe eight statements that actually came out of the revival in, uh, this is about 1700, the Great Awakening, Jonathan Edwards was critiquing the revival. And what he began to see in the midst of the revival is that, you know, you had the those that are for it people. You know what I mean? They're for the revival. There were some excesses in it, but they were for it. They were for it. And, and the people over here were again it. 
they're too excessive. You know, they raise their hand, they fall on the floor, they, you know what I'm saying? So you got the fours and the against. And, 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 and Jonathan Edwards, being the statesman preacher that he was, he, he writes this address and he calls it Some Thoughts Concerning the Present Revival in New England, 1742. And what it really about is what squelches the life of God, which is what we see contrasted through Mordecai and Haman. Jonathan Edwards calls it, and these are some application points for us to take home and think about, and I've penned some questions related to each one. The first one is, it's all about spiritual pride. And Jonathan Edwards writes, the spiritually proud person believes they are full of light already and feels that he does not need to heed instruction. Anybody go, ouch? The, the spiritually proud person believes they are already filled with light and therefore they don't need instruction. Here's the question. Do you find yourself giving instruction, talking more than listening, you find yourself talking and giving instruction more than receiving instruction and listening. That means in your relationships. You got all the answers? Just something to think about, just saying, you know. Number two, Jonathan Edwards said, proud people tend to speak about others' sins. Proud people always see the log in everybody else's eye the speck, I should say, and they don't see the log in their own eye. That's what he was saying. Proud people always tend to speak of others' sins. Here's the question. Do you speak and do you only notice the sins of other people more than your own? Remember, he's, he's talking about undiscerned spiritual pride. And the thing with undiscerned spiritual pride is it's undiscerned. That means you don't know you got it. I'm not proud. No, it's undiscerned. But here's some ways you can begin to discern whether real spiritual pride is at play. Uh, do you feel that you don't need instruction? And number two, do you talk about other people? Number three, Jonathan Edwards wrote, Spiritually proud people often speak of almost everything they see in others in the harshest and most severe language. Not only do they see other people's stuff, what you hear coming out of their mouth is a barrage of negativity and bitterness, maybe sort of like Haman. Here's the question, is your language harsh toward other people? Or is it gentle and being slow to speak and slow to anger and quick to listen. Somebody said God gave us two ears and one mouth. Might be a parable. Some of you probably need to recognize that you need to listen more and talk less. Maybe that's why the scripture says not let, let not many of you be teachers, brethren. Because you'll be judged by a harsher standard. That's to people like me. But it's also to people like you. Be careful what you see 
in how you speak. Number four, spiritual pride often predisposes persons to act differently in external appearance, to assume a different way of speaking, a different way of acting, or different behavior. In, in other words, you act differently on the outside than you are on the inside. That's an indication of spiritual pride. See, my question is, do we act one way outwardly, but are we another way inwardly? Number five, Edwards wrote about people in the awakening. The proud people take notice of opposition and in injuries and are prone to speak about them to other people with an air of bitterness and contempt. Proud people take greater notice of opposition and injuries done to them. They're in, so, in something about love should be patient and kind and bears all things and believes all things and hopes all things. But spiritually proud people tend to notice the opposition in the comments that are made to them and then they speak to other people about their hurt and their wounds. That's what he's saying. So do you speak to people about others with bitterness and contempt? You know, this, is, this feels kind of harsh. This can't be me. No, it can be me. That's the point. And it can be you. A couple more and then we'll ease up. Pull back on the throttle here just a little bit. And that is spiritually proud people. Um, another pattern of spiritually proud people is to behave in one uh, way uh, in order to make themselves the focus of others. In other words, it's got to be a. See, Haman, it was all about him. When I come near, you've got to bow and pay homage. He was spiritually proud. He thought he was something. God said, you watch this. So would you rather... Let's, let's look at this. Do you, have, uh, do you behave in ways that draw attention to yourself? Um, one under the influence of spiritual pride is more apt to instruct others than ask questions. Watch how you speak with other people. And are you more inclined to speak to them to give them advice, or are you more apt to ask questions about them? Would you rather give advice to fix others or ask them appropriate questions about themselves? You know, you can get at the very same thing far more powerfully by asking questions than you can trying to fix people. And when people feel like they're trying to be fixed, so they respond. That's a question. They straight arm you, don't they? Who are you? Out of my face. The last one. As spiritual pride predisposes people to assume much to themselves, so it also predisposes them to treat others with neglect. So here's the question. Do you find that it's easy to neglect people rather than really engage 
with people from the heart. Dean, why don't you come on, and we'll just end here for a few minutes. Now, this, this seemed rather hard, but in fact, if you read the book of Esther, what you find out is, you, I mean, you can talk about God's provision, you can talk about his sovereignty, you can talk about his, his uh, protecting his people and righteousness exalts one and, and, and uh, debases an, another if it's pride and arrogance. But really, it's really about the heart. It's classic contrast between the heart of, of Haman on one side and the heart of um, Esther and Mordecai on the other. And God has raised up a people upon the earth for such a time as this. That is not just Queen Esther. That is you. And therefore, the grid that Jonathan Edwards just gave us can become instrumental in helping us become all that God has called us to become because God has some of you being raised up for such a time as this. Some of you are in strategic places right now in jobs, in government, in medicine, in law, and you name it, God has some of you already beginning to be situated for amazing power and influence, and therefore you need to watch your heart and understand that God's given you that power and that influence for his purposes upon the earth. Let's just pray for a minute. Shall we do that? I wanted to have just a few minutes of, of quiet. So, just begin to reflect upon the questions that were asked. The life of Mordecai, the humble. The life of Haman, the proud. Each of their destinies that we saw lived out uh, through the book of Esther and we begin to come to an understanding that God really does see where we walk. God sees how we act. God hears every prayer that we uh, pray and hears every annotation, every, uh, every, every word that we use, every attitude that we reflect. So just ask the Lord in this moment, are there any symptoms of spiritual pride that he sees in your life. No, 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 hold on. Don't, don't think about other people. I sure wish old so-and-so were here to hear this. <laughs> you see, that may be a symptom. So just take a moment and ask the Lord to show you uh, what might be in your heart. the good news is that Haman could have repented but he chose to seethe in his anger, his judgments his bitterness, his hatred 
that ended up costing him everything. His place, his power, his influence, his standing before people. Father, we're asking that you would enable us as your people today to walk in the humility as the scripture says to clothe ourselves with humility God each one of us are utterly dependent on your life upon your forgiveness on your spirit living within us and Lord you've called many of us to places of power and influence and I believe that you want to increase that power and influence in the days even to come. And you're looking for people who are able to wield that power with humility and rightness so that you might exalt them to high places. Father, I pray right now as we close that as your people have come to you holding their hearts, so to speak, in their hands, asking for your grace and for your mercy, for your empowerment to change us at whatever level we need to be changed. God, that we can find the certainty that you, the King, always hold out the royal scepter to us and welcome us in. Let's stand and we'll be dismissed. And ask that any of our prayer ministers, our worship team, and ministry team, I'm sorry, and our elders, and spouses, if you kind of make yourself here. If you'd like special prayer before you slip out, it would be a great time for you to come. You know, it might be good just to have somebody to pray with you before you, you go. Now, if you feel, well, I don't want to go forward, what do people think? That's okay. Turn to somebody before you leave and go, can you pray with me about? Or can you pray with me? I got something I don't want to share. I'm uncomfortable sharing it. But I just want somebody to pray the blessings of God over the decision that I've made. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your mercy, and God, I pray that you would release the blanket of your grace upon us, your people, that as we humble ourselves before you in due time, we can be certain that you will raise us up. And everybody then said together, amen. amen. God bless you. Find somebody to hug if that's uh, better for you, or shake their hand, or pray with them before you slip out. God bless you, and have a wonderful afternoon today.